fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. A good Friday to you. It's not good Friday yet. We are still in Lent. We're getting there. We're getting there. But we are in a new month. It's March the 1st. Whole new month of shows for you. We're going to kick off the weekend in style on The Kale Clark Show. 888-914-914. Nine one four nine. I'm so pumped to get into today's show. Got so much great material for you. You're going to want to call in and grab a line. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Our listener line sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. And you can also, of course, find me on the X.com app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And you can email the program. Always good to hear from you. Show ideas, things you you, know, you think Kale might have a take on this, send it to me, a link to a story, a question that you might have. The address is Kale, C-A-L-E, at RelevantRadio.com. But once again, that phone number, 888-914-9149. And, you know, I can't resist a good cultural reference, so I entitled this episode Stone Temple Pilot. Uh, we might even play a song from the Stone Temple Pilots later on. Maybe, maybe, just maybe. I think it's a good probability, but... But really, that's a reference to today's gospel, because Jesus says that he is the cornerstone. Cornerstone of what? The cornerstone of what, exactly? We're also going to look at Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream code. That was the first reading from Mass today. How Joseph prefigures Jesus. It's unbelievable how many parallels there are. Plus, so much more that we've got coming up for you and the week that was. And the week that was by producer Jim Shaper and Miranda Sinaceros with the hockey assist on that one. But first of all, let's look at today's gospel. This comes to us from Matthew chapter 21. And this is the famous parable of the wicked vineyard tenants. And this is Matthew's version of Matthew 21. Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, hear another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went on a journey. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants, and one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. Again, he sent other servants, more numerous than the first ones, but they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. They seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? They answered him, He will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper times. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures? (laughs) The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord, this has been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. When the chief priests and the the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew that he was speaking about them. And although they were attempting to arrest him, they feared the crowds for they regarded him as a prophet. Okay, so this is um this occurred obviously very very close to the time 
of Jesus' passion, his arrest, his crucifixion. And this is really one thing that was kind of one of the last straws that, that led the religious authorities to, to understand that, man, we, we got to take this guy out. And so this is actually based on something in the Old Testament and something his listeners would have known very well uh, from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah has something called the Song of the Vineyard. Now, you can look it up. It's just a few verses, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And the prophet Isaiah is basically saying that there's this vineyard. It's been planted on a hill. It's gotten tender, loving care, great gardening. But despite all of this, there's no fruit, just just worthless grapes, sour grapes, literally. I mean, just good for throwing out. You can't use them for anything. Can't make wine with them. Can't even eat them as a snack. And and this is a parable about Israel because the vineyard is Israel. The owner is God and the fruit, you know, or the good deeds or lack thereof of Israel. And, and especially looking at the areas of justice, is justice being done at this time in Israel? What about economics? Is, is, is this a just society? Is it, is it fair for people? And, Israel is not passing the test at this point. So Jesus takes this parable that Isaiah kind of uses to preach against Israel, and he, and he kind of just, just tweaks it a little bit. And in this parable that Jesus is telling here, the fault is not with Israel as a people, not even close. It's with a specific group of people, the temple establishment, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, including the high priest, all of his cronies, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And really, what he's going to say is they didn't do their job. They didn't produce good fruit in the people. In fact, they did nothing but just try to take the inheritance for themselves. Avariciousness. And, of course, they're going to face the judgment. They're going to lose their leadership position. So this is this is really interesting because what he's doing here is he's shifting the focus from the nation as a whole to the religious leaders. And Jesus wasn't the only one to do this, by the way, at this time. You probably know that there were different types of or different expressions of Judaism in Jesus' day. There, of course, you probably heard of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Now, Jesus has a lot in common with the Pharisees. St. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in the judgment. They believed in life after death, heaven, hell, all that stuff. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that stuff. They thought that death was the end. That's it. It's the eternal sleep of death. You're not conscious of anything. They didn't believe in a future resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. Yet, the Sadducees were in control of the temple and the high priesthood. The high priest is a Sadducee. And I know Jesus fights with the Pharisees a lot. Not all of them were bad. But it's, it's ultimately the Sadducees that put Jesus to death, not the Pharisees. Don't forget that. The Sadducee high priest collaborated with Pilate. Talk about a stone temple Pilate, my goodness. Pontius Pilate to get Jesus killed. So Jesus' problem is with the religious leaders of the temple. They're not doing right by the people. And there's also this group of people, and they had sort of had their own group, and they were called... The Essenes, the Essenes, in all likelihood, these are the guys who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they were like, we're out of here. The, the high priest is so corrupt. The religious leaders of the people have become so corrupt. We're going to go live in the caves by the Dead Sea. And they lived in some other places as well. And just kind of hang out there and wait for the final battle to take place. And they certainly believed 
that the high priest was going to go down in that battle. And so they, they wrote something very similar to what, to what Jesus says here. And this is from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in a place called Qumran, down by the Dead Sea. Maybe you've been there. I've taken many tour groups there. And this was found in Cave Number 4. Cave 4 was where the mother load of the scrolls were found. A lot of scrolls found there. So it's called 4Q500. Means it was found, 4Q means Cave 4 at Qumran. And it's fragment number 500. So it's a very small fragment. And it's from the first century B.C. So just before the time of Jesus. But it does the exact same thing. In this, in this little document, they take Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. And they apply it to the corrupt temple leaders in Jerusalem. And uh, another place you can find something like this, by the way. Um, throw another term at you that you maybe have never heard before. The Targums. I don't know if you ever heard of the Targums. The Targums were like, the, these were used in the synagogue. It's basically the scriptures. So when people would go to the synagogue, they would hear the scripture in their own kind of street language, which was called Aramaic. Now, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Jesus would have been, uh, had some facility, of course, with Hebrew to be able to read the scripture in the synagogue. But there was also something called the Targum, which is an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament. So Jesus, Peter, John, all these guys, the apostles, when they're walking the dusty streets of Galilee, they're probably speaking in Aramaic to each other in all likelihood. So in the Aramaic version of Isaiah chapter 5, there, there's some little additions. It's, it's, it's not like a straight translation from the Old Testament. It's more like a, a bit of a loose translation with some other stuff thrown in. And it actually goes after, again, the, the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And here's what it says in the, and this is the Aramaic Targum of Isaiah chapter 5. This is what it says. My people, my beloved Israel, I gave them a heritage on a high hill in fertile land. And I sanctified them and I glorified them and I established them as the plant of a choice vine. And I built my sanctuary in their midst. And I even gave my altar to atone for their sins. I thought that they would do good deeds, but they made their deeds evil. And now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my people. I will take up my Shekinah from them, and they shall be for plundering. I will break down the place of their sanctuaries, and they will be for trampling. So what he's, what, what the writers have, have done there is they've changed this uh, imagery of the vineyard to change it into the temple. In, in the book of Isaiah, there, there's a watchtower in the vineyard. That has become the sanctuary in the Targum. That, that means the sanctuary of the temple. The wine vat that was set up in the uh, in the vineyard becomes the altar to atone for their sins. And then God says, I will take up my Shekinah from them. My, I'll take away my Shekinah from them. What is, what is the Shekinah? That, that's an Old Testament reference to the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And in the temple, that was guess where? That was in the Holy of Holies. It rested over top of the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So what's going on there is God is saying, I'm going to take away my presence from the temple. And this is prophesied, by the way, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10, chapter 11. It, do, I, I actually think this happened. The moment that this happened, by the way, 
is at, at the death of Jesus, when Jesus dies on the cross, what does it say, especially in the Gospel of Mark? It says that when Jesus dies with a loud cry and he gives up his spirit, guess what? The temple curtain is torn in two that separates this Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, or used to be, because it's, it's, it's now it's another story, but the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And that means, essentially, that God's presence is on the loose everywhere in the world now. It's not just in one specific location in the temple. So this is really interesting. So the death of Jesus really changes everything. And this is just pretty wild. So it becomes sort of this pronouncement on the temple establishment, the temple leaders. And again, so the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of have something similar to what Jesus says. Also, the Aramaic Targums in the synagogue. And then there are parables from the rabbis as well. There's one. There's a whole bunch of them, but I'm just going to share one with you. This is from Rabbi Yose the Galilean. And just like Jesus was originating from Galilee, there's Rabbi Yose the Galilean. And he talked about, Rabbi Yose talked about a mortal king who went on a trip. He went to another city far across the sea, but he had a son. And he decides, I don't know why he did this. It doesn't make any sense. He entrusts the care of his son to a wicked guardian. I mean, this guy was a nasty piece of work. And all of his friends and servants say to him, My lord king, do not entrust your son to this wicked guardian. But the king's like, ah, not a big deal. You guys don't know what you're talking about. So he entrusts his son to the guardian. Well, what happens? While the king is gone, this wicked person destroys the king's entire city, burns his house down, and kills his son with the sword. Then the king comes back, and he sees his city desolate, the house is consumed by fire, his son is dead, slain with the sword, and he pulls out all of the hairs of his head and his beard in anguish, and he breaks out into wild weeping, saying, Woe is me, how foolish I have been, how senselessly I acted in this kingdom by entrusting my son to a wicked guardian. Okay, so there are all kinds of parables like that in, in the rabbis as well. A foolish king who entrusts his son to a villain. So there's a little bit of a, of a link here to Jesus' parable. Because obviously the king in Jesus' parable is God the Father, who entrusts his kingship, if you will, the kingdom to a certain group of people, the temple leaders, talking about the religious establishment of Israel. And the son, of course, is Jesus. So you can imagine the, the high priests who are sitting there listening to Jesus tell this parable. And, and, and they know exactly what he's, what he's getting at here. They know what he's saying. And they're like, oh, man, we're in trouble here. I think I know where he's heading with all of this. The dramatic conclusion of the parable. What happens? The king is so enraged that the son is killed. And Jesus even says, what, what do you think what do you think is going to happen when the owner of the vineyard comes back? Oh, yeah, they're, they're going to put, he's going to put these wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit, the produce at the harvest time. Yeah, yeah, they should do that. So the fruits here, of course, are the good deeds of the vineyard, the good deeds of the kingdom. So basically what's going on here is all of these servants who are meant to collect, 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 and they just get beaten, they get thrown out of the vineyard. These are the prophets. These are the prophets that are rejected by 
the temple leaders. And, of course, the son is Jesus here. And Jesus is basically saying that he expects to be killed here. So when people think that Jesus didn't know he was going to the cross, that's absolutely ridiculous. He could see what's going to happen. So it's interesting, too, that that when it talks about um, all these guys, the, 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 the prophets and the son being attacked and thrown out of the village, it actually uses this word in Greek, ekbalo. That's the same word that's used for exorcisms, casting out. You know, kicking them out. Jesus kicks out the demons. Well, Jesus, the son, is kicked out of the city. And that's probably a reference to the fact that he dies outside the city gates at Golgotha. And so, obviously, everybody kind of knows, at least the high priests know, exactly what's, what's, what's going on here. Jesus is telling this story against them. Jesus also gives him a little sarcastic shot. He says, have you ever read? Have you never read this in the scriptures? You guys are supposed to be Bible teachers. You don't even know this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Now, where did when Jesus says, have you never read this in the scriptures, where is this? What's he talking about? This is from Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Now, this is interesting because Psalm 118 says this. Again, and this is according to the Aramaic Targums. It says, The boy or son on which the builders abandoned was among the sons of Jesse, and he is worthy to be appointed king and ruler. So it's interesting because Psalm 118 talks about, Jesus talking about a stone, but but uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But but Psalm one eighteen actually talks about a son. So what what's going on here? This is actually about David, the son of Jesse, who is worthy to be appointed king and ruler. God rejects Saul and chooses David. And, and by the way, there's kind of a pun here. There's a great pun. I love puns. You know me. I love puns. There's a great pun because in Hebrew, the word for stone and the word for son sound almost exactly alike. Stone is Haben, and son is Haben. So, by the way, John the Baptist made the same pun uh, earlier in Matthew's Gospel when the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they all go out to see what he's doing there at the River Jordan, this baptism of repentance. Why are all these people coming to you? And one of the things John the Baptist says to them is, hey, don't think that just because you are descendants of Abraham that you're going to get in. You're going to get into the kingdom of heaven. God is able from these stones, and there are all these like stones by the river Jordan meant to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 stones. There are these stones, and God is able from these stones to raise up sons to Abraham. In other words, God can start all over. God can make anyone his son or daughter if he wants to. So don't think that just because you are part of the people of God that you're automatically in it, the same warning applies, by the way, to Catholics. Don't think that just because you're a baptized Catholic that you've got a golden ticket to the kingdom of heaven. Do not pass go. You're, you can just go straight there. No, you've got to ratify that baptism. You've got to, your confirmation, you've got to confirm by staying in a, gr- a state of grace. You've got to produce the fruit, fruit of the kingdom as well. You can't be Catholic in name only. You can't be a Sino. You can't do that. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, parallels here, but When Jesus says, look, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you 
and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. By the way, this is not an anti-Semitic thing. Unfortunately, this passage has been taken the wrong way for centuries and centuries, and it's led to a lot of brutal anti-Semitism. It doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is taken away from the Jewish people and given to the Gentiles, given to the church. This is about the ruling priests. God is taking away leadership of the kingdom from the temple priests, the high priest, the teachers of the law, the scribes, and he's giving it to a people who are true believers, made up of true believers who are, some of them are Jewish, some of them are Gentile. It's in the Catholic Church, Catholic Universal, it's for all people. And this new community that Jesus is forming of Jew and Gentile Because a lot of Jewish people did believe in Jesus. They did not all reject him, not even close. All the apostles are Jewish, our lady, many did, but also a great many did believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So this is not an anti-Semitic passage. Jesus does not mean, I'm getting rid of Israel, I'm getting rid of the Hebrews, and I'm starting fresh with the church. No, this new kingdom of God, the church, is made up of Jew and Gentile. This is a rejection of the high priest. I, I just can't underscore that enough. So this is really, really powerful stuff. And of course, the high priests, they know everyone from the temple establishment, the religious leaders listening to Jesus as he's teaching in the temple courts, they want to arrest him right then and there. They'd love to kill this guy, but they can't. And in verse 46, it says they want to arrest him, but they fear the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Exactly the same with John the Baptist. They also wanted to kill John the Baptist, but uh, they were afraid because they they, they knew that John was, was a prophet. And so, Jesus, of course, is much more than a prophet. He is the divine son, and he is that cornerstone. Cornerstone of what? This temple of God, the church that is being built. He he is the cornerstone. It's all built on Christ. And we are all, as St. Peter says in the, later in the New Testament, we are all living stones built into the spiritual temple, the mystical body of Christ, the church, made up of living stones, and the cornerstone, of course, is Jesus. He really is the stone temple pilot, as it were. So hopefully that helps to understand a little bit that passage from the gospel today, this parable of the wicked vineyard tenants. And it's a good thing to think about as we get closer and closer to Holy Week uh, this is obviously closer in time to when Jesus is actually resting, goes through his passion. It's one of the tipping points for sure. We'll be right back after this on the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. There are the Stone Temple Pilots as we go to break. and fun. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the program. Faith, facts, and fun. That's what it's all about on the Kale Clark Show. 888-914-9149. We talked about the wicked vineyard tenants, what that parable really means uh, in the first segment. In just a moment, I'm going to talk about Jesus and Joseph, how he, how Joseph in the Old Testament and his amazing technicolor dream coat Apologies to Donny Osmond, really prefigures Jesus. The parallels are unbelievable. And that was the 
Old Testament reading from Genesis 37 about Joseph and being thrown into the dungeon, oh, all that stuff betrayed by his brothers. But first, got to share with you something that we do every Friday here on the Kale Clark Show. We call it The Week That Was. Let's run it. I know you have friends, family in your life who will say something to you like, hey, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. This idea that we don't need a religion, quote unquote, to know God, I don't agree with that because I think people think of religion as a bad word. And the, the word religion comes from a Latin word, religare, which, which essentially means to, to bind yourself to someone or something. This is how God gets a hold of us, how he gets into this relationship with us. And, and we would say that, hey, like you need the religion to have the relationship. You can't get any closer to God without dying when you receive the Eucharist. And why not be there with 80,000 people just like you who are seeking the face of the Lord in Indianapolis this July for the National Eucharistic Congress? And Josh, how can we get to Indianapolis? There's the limit on availability of hotels. And that that's really the practical matter here. All your travel can just be bundled up together. And there's a number of different options. If you go to our website, relevantradio.com, just on the homepage, you'll see where you can click for more information there. You can find it on the Relevant Radio app or the phone number that you can call to learn more. It's 844-400-9559. Here's what Jordan Peterson had to say about the state of the Catholic Church. What's the great adventure of life? Pick up your cross and follow me. That's a hell of an invitation, but that's the invitation. And the church lost faith in that. The gateway to paradise is barred by the cherubs who have swords that flame and turn every which way. Well, what does that mean? It means it's hard to get into the club, man. Wow, that, that is a searing hot take from Jordan Peterson. I wonder if you agree or disagree. Let's go to Jen in LA. I tend to agree with the Jordan Peterson. Nobody talks about sins anymore. A few years ago, we had this thing during the Holy Week for the seven last words. And I mentioned about my sin, you know, my abortion. And after that, the, the priest and the coordinator went to me and said that I can't mention that word, that people would be scandalized. And I said, it's my sin. And mm. you know, God came to save me from my sins. This is what Holy Week and Easter is all about, about the mercy of God, the love of God for me. What do you think about the concept that God can almost speak to us through what's going on in our physical bodies? Is this a way that we can kind of know things? I, I tend to think yes, because we are a composite of body, mind, and soul. Let's go to Ken. I was at a Curcio retreat and uh, people were offering yeah. their intentions. And a gentleman just asked for prayers for himself. He said, I'm just asking for your prayers for a difficult time I'm going through. And suddenly I just start crying, tears flowing down my face. And before that, I never cried. It was so strange and bizarre. I, I could only think, okay, the Holy Spirit has hit me over the head here. There's a message here for me. And uh, I went up and talked to him. And the only thing I could think of was, God loves you and nothing you will do will stop God from loving you. Later on, he told me that that's something that he really needed to hear at that time. Ken, I really do think that's the Holy Spirit at work. Oh, yeah. And we, we all need to hear that message. God loves you and me more than all the mothers in the world put together love their children. Unbelievable. That was the week that was. Thanks to producer Jim Shaper.
and Miranda Sinaceros for putting that together. Appreciate you guys. If you missed any of those episodes, we had lots of fun stuff, lots of great calls, lots of great phone calls this week. Check out the podcasts for The Kale Clark Show on the Relevant Radio app. Also, The Faith Explained Show. All of our programs are there. You can share them very, very easily with a friend. Uh, spread the good word about Relevant Radio as we try to bring Christ to the world through the media. Well, this is another story that that I wanted to to get to. We just we ran out of time yesterday, but uh, this is. I wonder if you guys are going to have a take on this. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Jim, do you have some some intro music for this? Uh, it, it's it, uh, it's a commercial. Okay, check, all right. Check this out, people. When I say cereal, you say dinner. Cereal. Dinner. Cereal. Dinner. Chicken. You can uh, have the night off, chicken. Oh, okay, I'll go marinate. Cereal. Dinner. Dinner. Cereal. Dinner. They're great. <laughs> okay. All right. You got to love Tony the Tiger. And, and this idea of cereal for dinner kind of created an absolute backlash against the Kellogg Company, of course, the makers of Frosted Flakes and many other. Uh, by the way, I am a cereal guy, man. I, 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 am, I am a cereal killer, absolutely. I had a big bowl of cereal for late night snack last night i, I kind of kind of did a little mix there too I, I had some i had some mini wheats also by kellogg's i mixed it in with some cheerios maybe i shouldn't have done that um there's probably a law in the old testament against that mixing two different types of cereals together but i did i did I had to use what was there i've always loved cereal at any time of day it's one of my favorite things in the world but the kellogg ceo took a lot of backlash and um Fox News published a, a story about this. Uh, he had an interview with CNBC's Squawk on the Street program last week. This is the Kellogg CEO, Gary Pilnick. We, I, I believe we have a clip of this too, don't we, Jim? Okay, let's play this. Some of the things that we're doing is first messaging. we got to reach the consumer where they are. So we're advertising about cereal for dinner. If you think about the cost of cereal for a family versus what they might otherwise do, that's going to be much more affordable. In general, the cereal category is a place that a lot of folks might come to because they, the price of a bowl of cereal with, with milk and with fruit is less than a dollar. So you can imagine why a consumer under pressure might find that to be a good place to go. Right. I'm all for innovation and marketing, but the idea of having cereal for dinner, um, is there the potential for that to land the wrong way? Uh, we don't think so. In fact, it's landing really well right now, Carl. When we look at all of our data, of course we would know that breakfast cereal is the number one choice for in-home consumption. We understand that for breakfast. It turns out that over 25% of our consumption is outside the breakfast occasion. A lot of it's at dinner, and that, that occasion continues to grow, as well as the snacking occasion. But um, cereal for dinner is something that is, is probably more on trend now, and we would expect to continue as that consumer is under pressure. I have to admit, as a busy mom, I've had cereal for dinner <laughs> more than once recently. So, Gary, I guess uh, maybe your marketing is, is working on me. Well, I, I wonder what you guys think of this. The comments of Kellogg CEO Gary Pilnick, and uh, you got a lot of pushback on this. This idea of cereal for dinner, with a lot of families out there, of course, facing food insecurity, inflation. Now, infl infl inflation was terrible last year; it was like around nine percent. I think it's back down to around three right now, give or take. Having said that, our dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. Economic problems, of course, in America. Did this strike you the wrong way? 
888-914-9149. Some commenters uh, on this original story said that uh, Pilnick was completely disconnected from what the average American is experiencing. Not to mention that some people said, listen, if you're eating a lot of cereal every day, that actually could be sort of a negative for you. Um, I don't know. I, I, I eat cereal all the time. But um, one commenter wrote this. This is kind of let them eat cake energy. This bro is out of touch with reality, another commenter said. So grocery prices, I mean, you and I have been shopping. We, they're, they're, they're unbelievable. It's, things are so, so expensive at the grocery store. Even though inflation levels are, are down a little bit, food prices haven't seemed to, uh, to decrease in lockstep. And people are obviously looking to save money. And um, some people are eating cereal for dinner because they have to, not because they, they want to. And um, I don't know. So I wonder what you guys think of that. I thought it was uh, an, an intriguing piece, cereal for dinner. I, I do it sometimes by choice, but there are people who do this of necessity. That, that's not a great thing. So there you have it. There you have it. That was one story that kind of caught my eye here. And producer Jim just said, I would need at least three bowls of cereal to make it to dinner. I know. I know. You, you, you've got a healthy appetite guy, and uh, I believe that a thousand percent. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention about um, today's readings, as I alluded to earlier, are all the parallels between Jesus and Joseph in the Old Testament, because the first reading today was from Genesis chapter 37. And I talked about this a lot uh, during the Genesis series on the Faith Explained show. Right now we're doing a series on Jonah. I don't know if you caught this. It's perfect for Lent. Themes of repentance, sackcloth and ashes, the reluctant prophet Jonah, uh, so if you missed any of those episodes, uh, check them out on the Relevant Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. But I, I want to talk about how Joseph prefigures Jesus. And I, I went into this on, uh, in some detail during the Genesis series, but it, 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 books, reams of books could be written about this because you could just never get to the bottom of this. Think, think about just, just a few comparisons we can make between Joseph in the Old Covenant and Jesus in the New Covenant. Joseph, of course, was especially loved by his father. And this, of course, aroused a lot of jealousy, especially with the Technicolor dream coat. His father had given him a special coat. And his brothers, human nature hasn't changed much. They did not take kindly to this. And uh, they, they got pretty jealous. But in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, it says how much Joseph was loved by his father. And then, of course, Jesus is the beloved son of the Heavenly Father. Think about the baptism of the Lord, the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, Matthew three seventeen. Joseph's brothers obviously did not believe him, did not believe what he had to say, talking about his dreams, talking about what was going to happen in the future, and they, they hated him for it all the more because he kind of was exalted in these in these dreams of the future. You can read about this in Genesis 37. And also, many of Jesus' brothers, quote-unquote, and by brothers I mean his, his brothers according to the flesh, um, his fellow Jews, did not believe in him. Many of his relatives did not believe in him uh, during his earthly ministry. Some did afterwards. In fact, many Jews did believe in Jesus as Messiah, not only during his ministry, but also after the resurrection as well. Multitudes did convert into the church, but many didn't. There's no question about that. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 8, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, flat out reject any, any thought of him ruling over the rest of them. 
And what does it say in Luke chapter 19, verse 14? This was a parable uh, told by Jesus, but it includes these words. We will not have this man rule over us. And uh, the rejection of the king. And very much like the, the parable of the wicked vineyard tenants that Jesus told in today's gospel, we just talked about it in the first segment, that the religious leaders of Jerusalem are going to kill the son, the son of the king. Joseph's brothers conspired against him, of course, in Genesis 37. Reuben, Reuben, um, he kind of says, let's not kill him, guys. He was a, a man of good sense. He, he created the Reuben sandwich after all. But Reuben was like, listen, let's don't kill him. Um, let's sell him in, into slavery instead. Let's just dig a pit here, throw him in there and see what happens. Of course, Judah, one of the other brothers, and by the way, it's interesting because Judah uh, later on becomes the name Judas. The name Judas comes from, of course, the tribe of Judah. It was Judas who betrays Jesus. And uh, Judah, of course, one of the brothers of Joseph, does in fact um, have him sold for a pile of money, some silver coins, if you will. And that's exactly what Judas in the New Testament does with Jesus. Joseph is stripped of his garments. They take off his technicolor dream coat in Genesis 37. Jesus, of course, is stripped of his garments uh, during his crucifixion. Everything that Joseph did, though, it prospered. It prospered. In Isaiah 53, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. It says, the pleasure of the Lord prospered in his hand about the future Messiah. And don't forget, what, what is Joseph, of course, goes through this great journey. He's thrown into prison. He comes up out of it. And he sits at the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt and becomes the number two guy in the kingdom. Pharaoh was considered a living God. This is almost a prefigurement of Jesus being raised, ascending into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, God, the Son. And, of course, Joseph provides food to starving people, the famine in the world. He provides this abundant bread the superabundant bread almost, it's a prefigurement of the Eucharist, the bread of life that Jesus provides for us who are spiritually starving. And just as Joseph's own brothers didn't recognize him in Egypt, many do not recognize Jesus as Messiah, um, both then and now. And we, we could just go on and on and on. There's so many parallels between Jesus and Joseph everything to their age. They're about 30 years old at the time. Um, and everything that, that Joseph went through was to, to ultimately save multitudes of people. And this is exactly why Jesus went through his passion as well. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall be saved. John three sixteen. Unbelievable. Okay, we got to take a break. I could go on. But uh, that's just a little taste of the typology about how God acts in the past. It's exactly how he acts in the new covenant as well. Salvation history sure does rhyme, to quote Mark Twain. 888 We'll be right back on The Kale Clark Show right after this. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back to the program. 888-914-9149 is the number to call if you've got a question for me. 
888-528-9149. Let's go right to the phones now. Michael is in Oaktown, Oakland, California. Hi, Michael. Hello there. Hey, good to have you on the program. What's on your mind? Well, well we, we do the um, benediction, uh, especially uh, uh, on Fridays. Okay. And uh, now they're, they've added uh, to the end of the divine praises, O Lord, send us priests. O Lord, send us holy priests. O Lord, send us holy priests in religious vocations. When did that become part of the divine praises? I don't think it's part of the divine praises, but it's it's probably a prayer for vocations. It's kind of added on in some quarters. Um, I'm told that this is very common um, in parishes where, where the Latin Mass is celebrated. But I think I think it's a good prayer. Um, it's not part of the uh, divine praises, but nonetheless, we do need holy priests. Obviously, we do need religious vocations. We do need lay people also to discover their vocations in life, whether it's a vocation to marriage, um, a vocation to, say, Opus Dei. I think a lot of people are called to that and maybe don't even realize that. But we, we, we need all of us to um, ultimately embrace our baptismal vocation uh, of holiness and apostolate. That's really the two things that God calls us to do, to become saints. Otherwise, our life's a complete failure because anybody in heaven is a saint. If we're, if we're not saints, that means that we didn't make it. So we got to take that seriously. Um, if you're aiming to get in by the skin of your teeth, that, that's a pretty low bar. What happens if you miss? Uh, don't want to think about those consequences. So we need to become canonizable saints. And number two, we need to help other people to discover the same thing. And so the vocation is really the answer to the question of, your, your individual vocation is really the answer to the question of how this is going to happen in your life. And some are called uh, to the priesthood. Some are called, of course, to religious life. Uh, many are called, many more are called to marriage. Uh, in terms of a numbers game, of course, um, most of us are called to marriage. Others are not. Others are called to celibacy, even as lay people for the sake of the kingdom. So they can be more available for certain things, for, for teaching tasks, what have you. So I do think vocation is incredibly important. And, um, and of course, as we know, vocations to the priesthood, uh, the numbers aren't, aren't great. Uh, in some quarters, they are better than others. Um, but uh, we need to pray for that 100%. So th- thanks so much for your question, Michael. And I'm joined right now by the host of Trending with Timri. Timri Jaja herself is, uh, is here. And uh, Timri, uh, you, you've kind of... Uh, uh, clocked in a little bit early to talk to me, and I know that we don't get to talk to each other much unless it's pledge drive, you know, usually. So it's good to hear from you. It's great to be with you, Kale, and I'm excited to share the story later today on trending of my friend Susan Caldwell. She's a medical physician who helps people with infertility, but she's mm. actually going to share a really special story today about what she did in her own life before she started to work with women who struggled with infertility. You know, I have a funny feeling this has to do with the firestorm of controversies mm. surrounding IVF, of course, the Alabama Supreme Court, uh, declaring uh, these frozen embryos that are often um, produced during the IVF process as persons, as having the rights of children, which I think is a great development, obviously, from a pro-life perspective. And there are a number of resources, by the way, if you're if you're listening to this program, you can go on the Relevant Radio website or the Relevant Radio app. There are a number of Great resources on this topic, including some articles by our own father, Rocky, explaining the morality or lack of morality, if you will, of IVF, why it's wrong, because a lot of people just aren't clear on that, Timory. 
Yeah, IVF is such a sensitive topic. I get it. You get it. I know that you guys struggled and you shared it before with fertility. We did mm-hmm. as well. I was told years before I even got pregnant because of autoimmune diseases at the time were undiagnosed. You, know, you might not be able to have children. We'll see what mm. happens. And I, that's a horrible conversation to have to yeah. have with someone before you even marry them. And praise the Lord. I know you've had children because of great NAPRO technology that assists in looking at underlying health issues. Mm-hmm. Same with me. Mm-hmm. And yet most women are told, hey, just try IVF. And yet exactly. I think that Kale, a lot of people think that the church is cold-hearted and doesn't understand the pain of infertility, and they should get with the times and adopt IVF and surrogacy as treatments for infertility. But what I find often, Kale, is that no one's really talked to women and men who have been through the IVF journey Mm. and the heartbreak and the damage to the woman's body, which is rarely discussed. We hear a lot of sensational stories. I see them all the time on Instagram and YouTube when there is a baby that's produced. But have you ever followed the journey when they lose many along the way? The marriage is rocky. And we'll even look at statistics of marriages that fall apart even when a child is born after the uh, effective treatment of IVF, which isn't very common. Yeah, and that's a good point because you you never hear from these women who who did not have a good experience with it. Certainly their their stories are not promoted in the media. It's somewhat like uh, women who, of course, appear at events like the March for Life saying, I, I've had an abortion and I regret it, <laughs> and here's why. Uh, their stories are not trumpeted by the MSM mainstream media for sure. And, yeah, it, it's just, I think it, it it's, I, and I know people, you probably know people, too, who have actually partaken in IVF. And there yes, are people, I have family from it. Yeah, yeah not immediate me, family, but yeah. Me, too. And, and tragically, a lot of them come from Catholic backgrounds, and they're just com- mm-hmm. completely unaware this is not online with the faith. And, and I think also there, there's sort of this mentality that that I have a right mm. to a child, but a child is always a gift. And, and that's, I think the mindset I think needs to be addressed as well. Yeah, I think there's so much there. I mean, we're, we're looking at children as commodities to be bought and sold. And that's what's frightening. When mm. Alabama issued this ruling that a child in the early stages of development as an embryo, a, a human baby, that that child has protections under the law. All of a sudden, three in vitro fertilization clinics closed in the state of Alabama when it came to their IVF services. And that's because you can't mm. go about the process of IVF and respect the human lives, the countless human lives that are there. And this is part of the reason why it's bad for women. I mean, women experience ovarian hyperstimulation surgery, which doctor, or sorry, um, syndrome, not surgery. And she almost lost her life. Dr. Caldwell will join me and share her story in a little bit. Uh, but that doesn't even touch on the fact that it's heartbreaking to go through and know that you've lost child after child through this experiment to try and conceive babies. Yeah, and I tell you what, I, I'm very much looking forward to hearing Dr. Susan Caldwell talk about this because she's been through this. Um, mm-hmm. She's experienced this. So I, I think it's going to give people a, a much different perspective on this. And uh, I think it's going to be a powerful show that you've uh, got lined up coming up here on Trending with Timory. Well, Timory, it's, it's great to I know you're going to be standing by for your show. Thank you so much for popping in uh, for these last few minutes of the Kale Clark show. And wow, so stay tuned. Keep it locked. To Thanks relevant for radio. Me, oh, you got it. You got it, Timory. So I know you got to prep for your show. So uh, she's going to get ready and, uh, and be all set for you in just a couple of moments here on Relevant Radio. But again, if you've missed uh, any of the episode today, the podcast will be out in just a few minutes after the show. So keep an eye out for that on the Relevant Radio app. You can also find out more 
about how to get to Indianapolis, get to the heartland of America and discover the heart of the Catholic faith, the Eucharist, the National Eucharistic Congress, and all the relevant radio personalities are slated to be there. Uh, Hope to spend some time with you in Indianapolis at the Congress. We've got travel packages set up just for you. So check that out on the app. You'll see a banner there and you can click on it. Also, the Faith Explained Jonah series. Don't miss a great weekend listening. If you're looking for something to binge, go for it on the app. I'm Kale Clark. Jim Shaper produced Miranda Cineceros. Stick your phone calls. We'll see you next week. Stay tuned for trending. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.